Hi, Mark Middleton, along with Bill Schaefer. Welcome back to another edition of Growing Boulder. Now, of course, you can't always hit 100% when you're booking interviews, but we don't book anybody if we don't think they can deliver hope, inspiration, and possibility. And we know for certain that our first guest, who has started a global movement improving the lives of individuals and corporations, will deliver all three. Sounds fascinating. And in a lot of cases, Mark, that would be enough for an entire hour's broadcast. But not here. Oh, no. Oh, we bring you so much more. In fact, this one is really going to speak to you. Do you remember... What was one of the most popular vehicles back in the 60s? Remember what it was? Well, let me give you a hint. It cost $2,000 back in the day. But if you still had one now, it'd be worth around a quarter of a million dollars. You know what kind of car I'm talking about? We'll have the surprising (laughs) answer. Also, we've got the national winner of the Center for Productive Longevities Contest. They were trying to find older people who lead successful and inspiring lives, and did they ever. Also, actor Christopher Walken will be here to tell us uh, how, for him, it's all about attitude. The Christopher Walken on on this show? The one and only. And why being an introvert isn't necessarily a bad thing. In fact... It could be pretty good for you. Doesn't it seem like these days people are griping about everything? Wouldn't you love it if we just for a little bit, Mark, could live in a complaint-free world? Well, Will Bowen wants to, and not only does he think it's possible, this guy has got the plan to make it happen, and that plan is getting a lot of attention. It's been featured on Oprah, The Today Show, ABC Evening News, CBS Sunday Morning, Fox News. Everybody wants to stop our complaining. Uh, And you know what? Apparently his program works. Bowen is a minister, and... And several years back, he challenged his congregation to try to live complaint-free for 21 days. No griping, no moaning, no criticizing, no gossiping for three straight weeks. His challenge has now grown into a global movement and an internationally best-selling book. It's called A Complaint-Free World, How to Stop Complaining and Start Enjoying the Life You Have Always Wanted. Let's find out more as we welcome Will Bowen. Hey, Will, how are you? Great, thanks. How are you? I was hoping you'd say great. If you, if you complain right off the top, we well, got a problem. My knee hurts and my back is sore and it's cloudy out. <laughs> hey, before we get to your bracelet program, how common is complaining? Have you done any research on how many times a day the average person complains? Yes, actually. The average person complains 15 to 30 times a day. And the interesting thing is they have absolutely no awareness that they're doing it. I like to say complaining is like bad breath. You notice it when it comes out of somebody else's mouth, but not when it comes out of your own. <laughs> so so what is the purpose of it, though? There must be some reason we do it. Does it make us feel better about ourselves? Or are we just trying to distract ourselves? Well, actually, a professor at Louisville uh, University went back and discovered that complaining goes back uh, to caveman days. I mean, you people would... Um, send out an alarm by going, you know, making sounds to get other people to know that there was an issue so they would bind together. So people actually connect through their complaining. In fact, people complain for one of five reasons, and the most common reason is to get attention. People are trying to get people to notice them. And it's a safe way nowadays to to make a connection with people is to complain. Unfortunately, there has been a lot of research done that shows that complaining is damaging to every area of your life, your health, your relationships, even your career. So who are the biggest complainers of all, Will? Is there a Why dem- are you looking at me when you say that? <laughs> <laughs> well, let's find out. Is there a demographic connection to complaining? Are, are men or women, young or old, rich or poor, more apt to complain? Absolutely not. It, it seems to cross all ages and all socioeconomic lines. Um, the interesting thing is, I do a lot of speaking to organizations uh, around the world, and whatever country I'm in, they say they are the biggest complainers. Whatever group I'm speaking to, they say they are the biggest complainers. Um, it just is ubiquitous. It's, it's, it's everywhere. So it's everywhere. We all seem to do it. We've done it since the caveman days. Why do you want to stop it? <laughs> well, because as I say, the the uh, the challenge with complaining is that it's it's hurt. It's actually harmful to our our health, our relationships, our careers. Uh, a lot of research has been done to show that the more a person complains, the uh, more health issues they tend to have. 
the more people complain, the less uh, fulfilling their relationships they have. There is a correlation that has been discovered. Actually, this, this was found almost 100 years ago that the people who complain to and about their spouses have a much higher divorce rate. And the biggest reason that I am, am trying to encourage people not to complain is that complaining keeps our focus on the problem rather than looking for solutions. I have tried to figure out why my handing out 250 bracelets has become a movement that has now reached over 10 million people in 106 countries. And the reason is, I feel, that number one, there's too much complaining in the world, and number two, the world is not the way we would like it to be. And in my opinion, the two are correlated. We're so busy focusing on what's wrong, we're not we're not making things better. No doubt, Will, you definitely have struck a chord. Uh, so let's talk about the bracelet concept. It's very, very simple. Tell us how it works. Well, the idea is you put on this complaint-free bracelet, but you don't have to use one of our bracelets. You can use a rubber band. But if you want, you can get our bracelets at acomplaintfreeworld.org, acomplaintfreeworld.org. You put it on either wrist, and every time you catch yourself complaining, you take it off the wrist and you move it to the other wrist. The idea is to make yourself aware of it until you go 21 consecutive days without complaining. Scientists believe it takes 21 days to form a new habit. It takes most people four to eight months of really doing this to do it. But the most common response people tell me is that they feel happier as a result of trying it. And even bef long before they go 21 consecutive days, people feel happier because their focus is no longer on what's wrong uh, and they're not speaking all the negativity into their world. So do you think uh, the time will come when anybody in Washington, D.C. ever orders one of these bracelets? <laughs> you know, it's interesting. Actually, a group of people at the Pentagon ordered them. And they, unfortunately, are not allowed to wear them because it's not part of their uniform. What they did was they put the bracelets on their desks, and every time they complained, they moved it to the other side of the desks. So in my book, A Complaint-Free World, I actually have an interview with a colonel there who said that it really transformed her department. Hmm. Folks, we're talking with Will Bowen, who has started a global movement uh, to help people stop complaining. Ten million people are now using his bracelets in order to get from here to there. Uh, and his book, as he mentioned, is called A Complaint-Free World. It's a quick read, and it really is a very fascinating read. I read most of it last night. And, and in the book, Will's got, uh, you know, kind of the rules, Bill. Negative self-talk doesn't count. A complaint has to be verbalized, so you can still think bad thoughts occasionally. <laughs> and delivery is also important, also, uh, right, Will? I mean, if I tell Bill, hey, it's hot today, that's not a complaint. Absolutely not. My definition of a complaint is an energetic statement that focuses on the problem at hand rather than the resolution sought. So if your energy is neutral, which is what a statement of fact is, Bill, it's hot today, that's a statement of fact. But if you go, oh, Bill, it's hot today, that's a complaint. Gotcha. What, what about the looking at it from the other side, Will? What about the idea that maybe, maybe the fact that we're all chronic complainers, maybe that leads to innovation? customer service or technological advancement. Maybe great ideas come from our complaints. You know, actually, in many ways they do, but those are not, in my opinion, complaints. What most people do is, if they have a problem at work, they complain to their spouse. If they have a problem with their spouse, they complain to their friends, and then they can't understand why things don't get better. If you're speaking directly and only to the person who can improve the issue, that's not complaining. So if you have a challenge with uh, a widget and you want to make the widget better, you talk to the widget people. What a lot of people do is they talk to everybody else, and then, as I say, they can't understand why things don't improve. So proposing solutions is not complaining. Just whining about a situation without attempting to fix it is complaining. Absolutely. And it's amazing how much people do that. In the introduction to your book, uh, something that caught my eye, you say you stopped watching news long ago. And, and, you know, Bill and I both used to work in local news, and we got out of it for the same reason that you stopped watching it, because local news has, in essence, become a complaint cast, focusing really on what's wrong in our communities instead of what's right. Yes, absolutely. In fact, um, someone has said that if you, if you truly ran the news as it, as it actually happened during the day, 
it would be about 29 minutes of good things, and then there would be a little blip that would run across your screen that was about the bad stuff. And my background is journalism as well. I have a journalism degree, and I was in, in uh, television and, and radio. What The old saying, if it bleeds, it leads. What happens is if you get people upset and anxious, then they're more likely to stay tuned in, as if somehow you're going to also provide them with the solution, which, of course, news does not. It basically gets you anxious and upset, and you tune in, and you tune in, and you tune in. And so, yeah, it, it actually serves very little purpose. Uh, I tell people that I, I choose not to watch the news because I choose to be happy, and yet if something important is going to happen, people will tell me there's a major snowstorm supposed, supposedly going to hit our area tomorrow here in Kansas City, and people have told me, so I went on the Internet, checked, and have made plans accordingly. Yeah, isn't it interesting, too, Will? We've, we've learned a lot uh, on this program about the power of attitude, uh, whether you're trying to overcome an illness or get past a disease. Doctors will tell you over and over again that a positive attitude, it's not just a cliche. It really makes a difference. So what you're doing is you're helping us sweep that negativity out, and just by osmosis, it'll be replaced you know, with more of a positive attitude, which is helpful to everybody. Absolutely. Dr. Robin Kowalski at Clemson University wrote that symptoms increase with symptom reporting. The more people complain about their health, the more health issues they tend to have. And what I find is that if a person has a particular health issue, let's say they've got a rash on their arm, they talk to everybody before they talk to the doctor. They're, they're talking to people and people, oh, my cousin had the same thing and it turned out to be cancer. And then they go to the doctor and the doctor says, no, it's just an allergic reaction. Stop eating a particular food. And then they almost feel gypped. They feel somehow deprived of their major drama in their life. So it's amazing how much by changing what we say, we change our lives. You know, it is a fascinating topic, a great book, folks. It's called uh, A Complaint-Free World. Uh, uh, and you know what really makes it so powerful is that it's so simple. You know, all the really great ideas are. So so check it out. It's written by Will Bowen. Will, thanks so much for your time, and, and good luck, and thanks for all you're doing. Coming up next, take a ride in a VW van. You know how much they're worth these days? This is Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by The Legacy Life Project from Macbeth Studio. Preserving family history, stories, and memories for generations to come by creating personal video biographies of your loved ones. Everyone has a story worth preserving. LegacyLifeProject.com Check out Growing Boulder TV, airing on public television stations nationwide. Visit growingboulder.com slash TV for program listings and where to watch. I'm Bill Shaver with Mark Middleton, and this is Growing Boulder. And Mark, something that we all seem to have in common is a very strong and passionate memory of the cars of our youth. Yeah. You know, the ones we drove in high school or college. And in large part, the memory of those cars are driving the car collector's market today. Boy, Bill, you're right. And a perfect example of that is the VW Microbus, the first real van, the hippie mobile. You won't believe what some of those are selling for these days. Gary Stratton's garage specialized in Porsches for 40 years until his son Jason recognized a coming trend and began restoring the iconic VW Microbus. As time progressed, the Porsches uh, stopped coming in and uh, these uh, buses that take up twice as much room started filling up the place, you know. Now the old rusty buses fill their lot and Porsches sit and wait their turn which may never come because the buses are where the money is. And one bus just sold on Barrett-Jackson, sold for 217000 bucks. That's right, this 1963 23-window VW bus sold for nearly a quarter million dollars, more than a Rolls-Royce from the same year. Why? Because baby boomers didn't drive Rolls-Royces in college. They drove microbuses. They want to relive their youth. They want to feel the way they used to feel. And... and and that, to them, is the most important thing in the world, is to have that feeling back again. Everybody's got a story about a bus. And a lot of the stories that I hear from the older individuals is what they used to do in them, you know. And, and 
Some of it probably couldn't be put on camera. <laughs> they drove across the United States, broke down 10 times, you know, smoked a joint in them. Their family's been made in these things, you know? Absolutely, all of the above. <laughs> yeah, certainly. And, and hope to do that in this one. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of the plan. Fred Tibbs is a successful high-end developer who owned a VW bus in college. He can drive anything he wants, and what he wants Jason, every now and then is a bit of a time machine. It's a feeling, it's a memory, it kind of takes you back in time, and I mean, they're, they're pretty cool. And of course, it helps that their value is appreciating rapidly. It's always nice to do something that brings you great joy and makes you smile and also puts you in a position where you're not going to lose your ass. For some, it's nostalgia. For others, an investment. All this will be blue. And for some, like Joe Doak, it's a legacy. He plans on giving his rare 23-window bus to his son when he's old enough to drive. This will be your car one day, Mason. Joe became nearly obsessed with finding a 23-window bus back in the 90s. In 1995, his search paid off. I found uh, an ad in Oklahoma City, and it was the typical little old lady in Oklahoma City story, and she had an original bus. Joe spent more than a decade collecting parts and preparing for a major restoration. When he found Jason Stratton, he knew it was time. He's been working on the bodywork for over a year just to get to this point. Uh, this is, it's all about getting the body back to original con condition. Gary and Jason do frame-up restorations, and the good news is... You can get every part for this vehicle. I mean literally every part. They restore the interior to like new original condition, and some parts they replace with better than original. Having brakes and, and a larger motor and a different transmission is very, very important um, for safety features. So Stratton buses have Porsche brakes and suspensions and souped up engines. The result is a vintage bus that drives like a new sports car. There's only one downside to their work. Uh, it is so nice that it sort of scares me to drive it. <laughs> the Strattons are having the time of their lives making dreams come true. And the greatest thing is I get to work with my son. And I'm blessed to be able to do this with my dad. You know, it, it I'm very lucky. You know, I'm, I'm a very lucky man. See, this is why your dad likes working with you. Look at your dad over there right now. Absolutely, you're, you're half different. the time, that's what he does. <laughs> Actually, this is what a shrewd businessman looks like. A businessman smart enough to know when to go along for the ride. I don't have any Porsches in the shop here that will sell for 217,000 bucks. So we'll work on, we'll work on buses. Oh my, once again, it's one of those, Mark, where if we only knew then what yeah. we know now, VW buses, they went for what, around a couple thousand yeah. dollars is all it would have taken to get one uh, uh, back in the 60s. And really, until recently, you probably could have found an old one that was affordable. But they're getting harder to find now, even though if you still look in a barn or someone's backyard <laughs> every once in a while, you'll find a deal. It, which makes it fun. Kind of a treasure hunt. And in addition to the 23 window, the pickup and the panel truck version to the micro bus are coveted by collectors. So keep your eyes open for those. And Bill, the Strattons acknowledge that a van perfectly restored with all original parts is ultimately more valuable. But it's not as enjoyable or safe to drive on today's highways, which is why they believe buses with updated brakes, suspensions, transmissions, missions and engines are the way to go. In this great melting pot that is America, is there anything that everybody likes to do? Well, get this. 80% of adults in this country, 80% drink coffee. People crave that kick of energy, but these days you can bypass the coffee and go straight to all kinds of energy drinks. But what is in those drinks? Let's find out from registered dietitian and nutritionist Dr. Susan Mitchell. Thanks, Bill. Hi, foodie friends. Before you grab and gulp that energy drink, did you know that manufacturers do not have to tell you the amount of caffeine in a product? According to Consumer Reports, manufacturers only have to tell you that caffeine is present. Typically, you'll see caffeine listed on the ingredient label, but you won't see an amount. 
Besides coffee and energy drinks, you can buy caffeine in gum, mints, and candy such as jelly beans. Yes, jelly beans. Jelly Belly makes extreme sports beans. A small bag contains about 50 milligrams of caffeine. One piece of Jolt gum contains roughly 50 to 60 milligrams. And don't miss this. Crackheads 2, which are chocolate-covered espresso beans, contain, according to their website, the same caffeine and seven and a half Red Bull energy drinks or 11 cans of Mountain Dew. You can see how the content of caffeine really varies. Shocking, isn't it? It's like a heart attack in a jelly bean, isn't it? That's that's frightening. So what is the deal with caffeine? I mean, one week you'll hear a study come out that say it's bad for you. Another week it's good for you. Is there an amount that we should make sure not to go over. Yeah, well, Bill, the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics suggests that 200 to 300 milligrams of caffeine per day is a fairly safe range for most people. Now you're thinking, I don't measure in milligrams. What's that mean? This could be two or three cups of coffee or one energy drink. But really, it depends on the size of your cup or mug and your body's reaction. Symptoms such as feeling nervous and anxious, not being able to sleep, and stomach aches are not uncommon at caffeine levels under 300 milligrams. Some people can drink several cups of coffee a day or an energy drink and never be bothered at all, while someone else may have a small amount of caffeine and feel nervous with a pounding heart. Dr. Susan Mitchell. Coming up next, the national winner of the Later Life Story Contest, how one woman who was unhappy in her job quit to start an organization that no one, other than herself, of course, thought was possible. That's next on Growing Bolder. Support for Growing Bolder provided by... The Center for Health and Well-Being, now open in Winter Park. Wholeness, fitness, and medicine together in one convenient location offering programs and services to promote healthy living and positive aging. More at yourhealthandwellbeing.org. Sign up for the Growing Boulder Insider Newsletter, delivered to your inbox every week. Be the first to see our latest interviews, stories, and tips for making each day count. Sign up today at growingbolder.com. The following interview was recorded before the passing of our guest. Bill Schaefer along with Mark Middleton. You're listening to Growing Boulder. Interesting segment here coming up because our next guest is the national winner of the Center for Productive Longevity's Later Life Story Contest. Now, this is a really interesting contest designed to demonstrate that older people can lead successful lives, inspirational lives, and still give back to the community at the same time. Yeah, a fact we discovered long ago, Bill, and celebrate almost weekly here on the show. You get a prize for it these days. Yeah, you do get <laughs> a prize, good. and it's well-deserved. Uh, she began an organization that's called Big Apple Greeter back in 1992 when she was 59. It was the nation's first-ever welcome visitor program. It is now going stronger than ever, as is she. Let's welcome 80-year-old Lynn Brooks. Hey, Lynn, how are you? I'm very good. How are you guys? Man, we're thrilled to have you on the program. First of all, congratulations on your big win. That is just fabulous that you, you get the, the recognition that you deserve, even though we know that's not why you do it. What is the purpose of Big Apple Greeter? What service does it provide? Well, we have about 300 volunteers who we match on a one-to-one basis with a visitor coming into New York. So if you live in Colorado or you live in Timbuktu or Paris or Tokyo or anywhere around the world and you're coming to New York, uh, you'll find our website, BigAppleGreeter.org, and um You'll fill out an application saying, I'm coming to New York on the date you're coming and what you're interested in, what language you speak, and they, then we will for free match you with a volunteer New Yorker to take you around for three or four hours. So it's 
meet a real New Yorker and walk around a real New York neighborhood. You know, Lynn, we've talked to a, a lot of people who have interesting ideas and concepts, and, and it falls apart when they try to make it happen. For instance, you know, you might say, well, all we'll do is we'll ask for volunteers. We'll get 300 of them, and they'll be able to do this. How in the world did you get these people to sign up to hear about you, and were you worried that maybe they wouldn't do it the way you've envisioned it? Um, no, basically, was I worried? No. Uh, I was really surprised uh, at how New Yorkers really wanted to do this. We immediately, as soon as the start of the program was announced, we were flooded with people who wanted to meet people from all over the world. Uh, we provide an opportunity for volunteers to meet people uh, there's a, a very strong um, intercultural aspect of this program. People meet other people who they would not normally meet. Uh, and it's an opportunity to really change the world in one person at a time. Uh, it's it's a very special program that does really good things for the city and for uh, the volunteers and for the visitors. Yeah, you know, another example that, you know, the really good volunteer programs are always win-win. Both sides get, get an equal amount out of it. But, exactly. Uh, but all of that said, the city loves it now. I can't imagine how many people had to tell you initially. Uh, you're a 59-year-old woman. Uh, you're, you're coming up with an idea, you know, where there are already organizations paid to take care of visitors. I can't imagine how many people told you it will not work. Did you hear a lot of that, and what kept you going when you did? <laughs> the answer is yes, I heard a great deal of that, uh, without question. Um, what kept me going was a belief in the idea. I knew it would work. I loved New York. I knew there were a lot of other people who loved New York. Uh, and it was just a question of perseverance. I knew I couldn't start it without some funding, uh, without some support. And I just started with the mayor and worked my way to people I knew. I had worked with volunteers. I had worked in New York City. I had worked at a university. I mean, I wasn't coming at this cold without understanding. I never worked in the travel industry, however. I, I didn't I didn't know um, anything about that. Had I known, I might have not been so, so willing to persevere, but... Um, Basically, I believed in it, and I wasn't about to give up. So after each uh, response, which was, Lynn, this is really a good idea, uh, but it won't work for this and this and this reason, I just went on to the next person and the next person. So I think the answer from my perspective is anybody can do anything if they're not willing to, to give up, if they just keep going. Yeah, you have to be willing also to try to put you, because you knew in your mind all those reasons that it would not work, but you chose to focus on the ones that would. And, and that's part of what we think makes you really interesting. You walked away from a pretty good job when you were 59 because you you were wanting more. You What did your friends and family think when you gave up <laughs> your other career to do this? Yes, that's exactly uh, any number of people told me that at your age, uh, this is a really foolish thing to do. You've got a really good job, and you're never going to get another one. I didn't think so. <laughs> and and I felt that uh, I could do something else. I had, Not that I didn't like the job I had, but I had been doing it for a while. Uh, I wasn't challenged anymore, and I thought this was a good idea that would work. And it had been in the back of my mind for a long time. But I moved it to the front of my mind and started working on it with a typewriter. Remember typewriters? <laughs> Never heard of them. Didn't even know how to use a computer. <laughs> Folks, we're talking to uh, 80-year-old Lynn Brooks, who at 59 walked away from a job and started uh, the nation's first welcome visitor program in New York City, Big Apple Greeters. It's been called the most cost-effective public relations arm in the entire city. What have you gotten out of this, uh, Lynn? You know, what is it, what is it given to your life? But before I answer that, it's probably not the first welcome visitor program. You know, there are all kinds of welcome visitors. But the first of its kind that matched volunteers with visitors for three or four hours together to walk around a neighborhood, to become familiar with the city uh, in another way. Uh, it's a unique welcome visitor program, but there are many other 
I, I don't want the world to think that this is the only welcome visitor program that ever existed, because there are many. Got it. So, so what did you get out of it, and what can you what share I got with out us? Of it, um, was much more than I expected. I thought it would be a temporary part-time job for me. Uh, my staff and laughs at me now because it's a very big full-time job. Uh, I enjoy the challenge. Uh, I get a lot of warm fuzzies from people who say to me, oh, I'm so glad you started this program. It's so meaningful to me. Uh, I can't tell you what it's done for me in my life. And these are men and women of all ages. Uh, I was surprised. Uh, I kind of thought it would be a bunch of retired elderly white women. And the reality is it's men, women, working people who can do this on a weekend or can do it during the week because they have um, odd job shifts. Uh, so I get a lot of opportunity to meet very interesting people, uh, very nice people. It's a pleasure to to walk into my office every day and see all these wonderful, wonderful people. Uh, plus, it's now worldwide. That's I never ever thought that would happen. So that's that's wonderful. Um, it's thrilling. Well, you know what? It's, it's a pretty great way to end it there, Lynn. I mean, I want to let people know that if they want to take advantage of it or learn more, go to BigAppleGreeter.org. And, God, Lynn, you're so impressive. I mean, not only winning the prize that you did, but what you've started proves that we can all make a difference, and it's never too late to find something that truly fulfills you. Coming up, he's one of the most unusual actors going today. Find out why he's also one of the most outspoken. Christopher Walken is Growing Boulder next. Support for Growing Boulder provided by Winter Park's new Crosby Wellness Center at the Center for Health and Well-Being. More than just a gym, it features unique medically integrated programs, activities for all ages and skill levels, and free group exercise classes with memberships. More at CrosbyWellnessCenter.org. Stay connected to Growing Boulder for daily doses of hope, inspiration, and possibility. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for our latest stories and motivational pictures. This is Growing Boulder. I'm Mark Middleton along with Bill Schaefer. And folks, you've picked a great time to tune in. We're about to meet a true legend of stage and screen. This is a guy who's won a Tony and an Oscar, and he's hosted Saturday Night Live over half a dozen times. Oh, my God. You want to talk prolific? He's been in countless movies, including Deer Hunter, Annie Hall, Pulp Fiction, and he is instantly recognizable from TV appearances like this. Bruce, could you come in here for a second, please? That that was going to be a great track, guys. What's the deal? Uh, are, are you sure that was sounding okay? I'll be honest, fellas, it was sounding great, but I could have used a little more cowbell. <laughs> more cowbell, a Saturday Night Live classic, and now starring in a brilliant film called A Late Quartet, in which some say he has given the most magnificent performance of the year. Let's welcome the subtle yet bombastic Christopher <laughs> Walken. How are you, Christopher? Hi, good morning. You're amazing. You've done dramas, comedy, even a little bit of dancing. You like to take risks. And now, in a late quartet, you play a classical violinist. Whatever happened to playing it safe? Well, it, 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 was, a, it was a wonderful part to come up at this time of, of my life and uh, something different. And, you know, actors look for to do something different, something unexpected. And uh, it was a wonderful part to come along. You know, Christopher, the many things we love about you, you, you are as cool as cool gets, and it's no secret you'll turn 70 next year. How have you avoided becoming typecast as any one, two, or three things? Because you've done everything in the entertainment industry. Well, I started out uh, as uh, in musical theater, you know, really as a dancer, singer, um, and I, I never expected to be an actor necessarily. I I started to get little parts, and then I got more parts. And um, my, I've always been in show business since I was a little kid. I just was, uh, I've gone to various areas of show business, if you will. And now, I, as I get older, I'm starting to get parts for fathers, you know, grandfathers, okay. uncles, people like that. And that's a nice 
change because it means I I maybe have a, a, a you know new territory to to get into. And you know, Chris Mark mentioned uh, seventy years old is an age where most people are winding down, but you sure don't show any signs of that. Well, I I, I love to go to work, and uh, you know I try to take care of myself. I'd like to you know be able to go wor- go to work for as long as I can. And before we talk about what might be next, Bill mentioned some of your iconic films. For me, 1978, uh, The Deer Hunter, just absolutely blew me away, and I think it did many people uh, of of our age back then. Did you have any sense while you were making this film uh, how emotional, how dramatic, how transformational it might be? Absolutely, I did. I I remember making the movie uh, very clearly. I hadn't made that many movies at the time, and uh, I did have a sense making it, and I think all the actors in it did, that we were doing something that was, uh, that people were going to pay attention to, to be with those actors and to to be in the places where we were. So the stuff in the United States, very interesting uh, in the case of the hunting scenes, very beautiful uh, in the mountains, uh, the Cascade Mountains of Washington State. And then, of course, we shot in Thailand, which was fascinating. And, you know, when I was young, and uh, it, was, it was really special. And, and yet you can take a role like The Last Quartet and, you know, go, this is the range that Christopher Walken has, a, a movie about two violinists trying to find their, their place in, in life. How do, you, how do you go from one to the other in one career? Well, you just, um, you know, you get the script and you study your part and try to get it right. You know, Chris, oftentimes we ask people what's still on their bucket list, especially people that, you know, have the, the time, the resources, uh, the bandwidth, if you will, to do whatever they want. What, what's left undone for you? What, what, what still tickles your fancy? Well, I would like to continue doing what I've been doing and, uh, you know, to do movies. Movies are a kind of a roll of the dice. Uh, you know, it's just as hard to make a movie that succeed, uh, to, that, that doesn't succeed as to make one that does um, there's a lot of effort that goes into making a movie, uh, not necessarily for the actors, but it's a huge undertaking, you know, and and, and it's expensive, and um, everybody always tries their best. But to be in a successful movie, of course, is wonderful. Uh, but in my life, I've always been able to go back and do a play. I live near New York, and uh, uh, I've always been able to do something off-Broadway or on-Broadway, um, and to to keep busy that way. I don't really have any other. Uh, I don't really have anything much else to do. I don't have any hobbies. Uh, <laughs> I don't have children, and uh, I don't like to travel. And so, going to work is my favorite. You know, you're going to need to find an awful lot of roles. You come from pretty interesting stock. Is it true your father lived in '98 and your mom was 103? My my mother was yes, she was 103, and my father was uh, almost that. Yeah, and uh, I hope so. You know, you have to you have to take if you're an actor, you have to try to take care of yourself, not get too much mileage on you. You know, you know, Christopher, give us uh, before we go a couple of words of wisdom, if you will, because you have experienced success. You're a guy who's not afraid to take chances, think out of the box. You know, take some risk. Uh, what what have you learned? Is there any is there any one thing you can share with us about trying to create a life of significance for ourselves? Well, I, I think that you have to do the thing that you have passion for, the thing that you love to do. So it's been said, you know, many times that, you know, you do what you love to do, and if you get paid, and especially if you get paid well, uh, you're very lucky. But the important thing is to do, you know, the thing that's, you know, that can occupy you every day. And, um, and you know, you talk about taking chances. I guess I take chances uh, professionally, but... Uh, as a person, I, I I don't take chances. Actors ask me for advice sometimes, and I say always, uh, even in the limo, wear your seatbelt. Mm-hmm. Wear your seatbelt is as good advice as I can think of. <laughs> uh, you know, take care of yourself. Um, you know, just try to be ready for the next opportunity. And you've done such an amazing job, Christopher. We want to thank you for taking the time to visit with us. And, you know, he's one guy, Mark, who, who, you know, it's tough enough to have a long career, but even tougher to be the kind of person where you're 70 and people of every generation still think you're cool. 
Uh, you know, I, and I think one of the keys to that, Bill, is he's not afraid to, to laugh at himself. He, he will have a, a lot of fun. He'll play just about any character, and he can play over the top if he wants. Isn't that interesting? He took a lot of roles, uh, turned very few down. You know, he's been, and he, as he said, he's been married forever, but he has not had kids, and he said that's allowed him to really dive into his work and his passion. Boy, a great guy, and, and what a fun conversation. And if you've loved Christopher Walken in anything, then you're going to want to check him out in this one. He's with the smoldering Catherine Keener and the always compelling Philip Seymour Hoffman in the film A Late Quartet. Boy, how great is it to get to do a little growing boulder with Christopher Walken. Coming up next, are you an introvert? Why is everyone talking about introverts all of a sudden? This is Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by the UCF College of Medicine, where physicians, scientists, and teachers are discovering innovative solutions for today's medical challenges and bringing them to you. Learn more about the college's physician practice at ucfhealth.com. Subscribe to Growing Boulder magazine, now with more information, articles, and photos than ever before. This quarterly publication is unlike any other, filled with the kind of inspiration you need to live your life to the fullest. More information at growingbolder.com slash subscribe. This is Growing Boulder. I'm Mark Middleton. That guy over there is Bill Schaefer. I'm pretty sure Bill is not an introvert. What? I could be. I'm not 100% sure about that, but we will find out because introverts are generating a lot of buzz these days. They sure are. We're going to talk a little bit about why here. Our next guest is a writer for Psychology Today. She's got a very popular blog out there called Introverts Corner. She's the author of a new book called The Introvert's Way, Living a Quiet Life in a Noisy World. Welcome to Sophie Dembling. Hey, Sophie, how are you? Hi, I'm great. Now, you know, if you're going to play along the stereotype, you wouldn't have, you'd said, I'm fine. You know, it's the thing in our head that introverts are quiet. They're not good conversationalists. They, they really can't compete in a verbal, audio-dominated world. Well, in a way, we can't compete if we're having to really jump in there and wrestle some attention our way. But many of us are perfectly capable of being social. Um, we're not shy. That's one of the biggest misconceptions about introversion. Shyness means you're kind of afraid of getting out there and talking to people. Introversion means it's more motivation. You're, you're not as, you don't need it as much. You don't want to do as much social interaction. So I can pretend to be an extrovert when I need to. I can put on my extrovert when I need to. But it takes a lot more out of me. I then need to kind of shut down and recover from the energy I've expended. And, you know, Sophie, before we, we learn more from you about, you know, how many introverts there are and what exactly makes an introvert, you know, one of the neat things about this trend, this new interest in introversion, is that we're learning that introverts are not just failed extroverts, that you know, I think many people have had the, the misconception for years that there was something wrong with being introverted. That's absolutely true. We've been told that extroversion is the way to be, that extroverts are happier and they're more successful and, you know, they're just, it's something to strive for. And even psychology looks at introversion when they're studying introversion, extroversion. It, it, the way they measure it is that the less extroverted you are, they assume that the more introverted you are. And I'm not sure that's exactly right. I think en introversion has its own energy and its own strengths that people are just starting to pay attention to. It's an exciting time. So maybe, Sophia, we can start with just talking about how do you define somebody who is an introvert? Is it, is it just what we think? Is it someone who sits in the corner is it, and is kind of quiet? Or, or, or how do we know if we're an introvert? It's, it's very funny how many people are introverts and it never really occurred to them. I think that the definition is sort of developing as uh, researchers are taking a different look at introversion. But the thing that most of us relate to most strongly is the idea of energy and how much energy we expend and gain from social interactions. Um, extroverts tend to get a lot of energy from being out there and mixing it up with people, and it really pumps them up. On the other hand, introverts, while we can do that, it actually drains us of energy, and we, we get more energy being alone and with our thoughts and sort of recharging in quiet and solitude. 
are all of us a variation along some sort of continuum of, of either introvert or extrovert, or is there some other classification out there? And, and how many of us would be defined as introverts? We, we all definitely are on a continuum. Um, you know, there are some people that consider themselves uh, what they call ambiverts, which is sort of like being ambidextrous. You can kind of go either way. Uh, you know, there are some people who are so far along the introvert scale that the idea of going to a party gives them hives. You know, and then there's me. I like a party. You know, I like certain kinds of parties. Um, maybe I don't like a giant party, but I like a small party. And so I'm just a little bit more down the towards the extrovert side of it. And the number is interesting. It appears that, that about half the American population is introverted, and that's kind of a new uh, way to think about it. We've always heard our whole lives that American is, America is an extroverted nation. And when you really start crunching the numbers, that appears to not be true, that actually there are far more introverts than um, we've let on. <laughs> We're talking with author Sophia Dembling, who's written a really interesting book called The Introvert's Way. And Sophia, one thing I wanted to ask you as a parent, you know, is introversion and extroversion, is that the, is it something to do with the way you're born or can you learn to be one or the other? Is it a skill you can develop? It absolutely appears to be something we're born with. Introversion, extroversion is what the personality psychologists um, consider a stable trait, which means that it kind of lasts throughout your lifetime. If you're introverted at five, you're going to be introverted at 50. The difference is um, shyness, which is what a lot of people think of as introversion. Shyness can be changed. Introversion is not an obstacle to success. You simply have to know who you are and know what your strengths are, and you can work with introversion quite well. Shyness can be an obstacle, and shyness you can change. Introversion, not so much, and nor do you really need to or want to change introversion. And, and uh, Sophia, what is the, the, the takeaway here? I mean, it's obviously a fascinating discussion, but why did you write this book? What, what, what are we to get out of this? Is, is there something that, that, that we need to know? Uh, is it just to make people feel better about who they are? Well, I think that's a very important thing to do, actually, to make people feel better about who they are. And what I have found is once I started sort of recognizing and honoring my own introversion, I functioned much more comfortably in the world because I wasn't pushing myself past exhaustion. Um, you know, what I like to say is that when you learn that you can say no to an invitation, it makes e it easier to say yes to invitations. When you learn you can, it's okay to leave a party when you've had enough party, it makes it a lot easier to go to that party in the first place. And I've even gotten better about the phone. Now that I know that it's not a moral failing to dislike the phone, as many introverts do, I feel sort of less of a, uh, you know, I, my relationship with the phone has improved tremendously. So I think that understanding who we are and understanding our thresholds of interaction or parties or whatever can help us enjoy our life a lot better because we're not always trying to be something we aren't. We're not always trying to be extroverts. Yeah, I guess texting is kind of an introvert's dream come Love true. Love text. You know, I wanted to, I wanted something else that really caught my eye in your book is the fact that a lot of celebrities and, and rock stars and musicians are introverts. You know, you, you see, you hear people say, oh, Prince, he's so quiet. And you think, yeah, come on, it's an act because how can a guy get up and perform in front of 50,000 people and be an introvert? Well, you really can because we can – I call it my dog and pony show, and I can turn it on at a party. I can speak in public. There is something that to be said for a situation where we're up there and we're kind of in control. You know, when you're performing, you have control over what you're doing and what you're saying. Um, I often joke I do readings and signings and kinds of things, and I'm fine standing up in front of an audience and talking. It's the meet and greet before and after that I find a little more stressful because it's sort of I don't know what's going to happen, and I tend to not think on my feet very quickly, which seems to be an introverted trait. And so really, as long as we're in charge <laughs> of our airspace, it's a lot easier for us to do. And yes, many, Steve Martin, of all people, uh, is an introvert, but it has to do with sort of where he gets his energy. And, and when he's not on stage, he's off being introvertish. 
You know, it is a fascinating topic. The book, folks, is called The Introvert's Way, Living a Quiet Life in a Noisy World. Certainly will help you better understand not only yourself, but perhaps your children, your coworkers. It'll make you a better employee, a better manager. Uh, the more we know about the psychology of ourselves and those we live with and work with, the better. Her name is Sophia Dembling. Sophia, thank you so much for your time and good luck with the book. Boy, Growing Boulder Radio, Bill, always an eclectic mix of of guests from many different disciplines, different areas of life. But we do hope that there is a common thread that runs through all of it. We we hope that we help motivate you even just a little to realize that it's never too late to get off the couch and get into life. And I think we did a little bit of everything today, including a look into the future. Well, here's the good news about your future, folks. You can, to a large degree, control how much you enjoy it. You have the power to find meaning to create opportunity. You just have to start growing bolder. And that's what's great about this program, Mark. It's like a parade of one example. After It's not you and I telling people what to do. It's hearing other people talk about what they did mm. that made their life just blossom in ways they never thought possible when they first started. And of course, we're here to help that happen. You can find Growing Boulder not only here on the radio, but be sure not to miss Growing Boulder TV. Check out growingbolder.com and now Growing Boulder Magazine. And if you haven't already, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and we'll keep you up to date on all things Growing Boulder. See you next time. Growing Boulder is a production of Boulder Broadcasting, all rights reserved. This program was recorded live at the studios of WMFE Orlando. It is written and produced by Jill Middleton, Jackie Carlin, Mark Middleton, and Bill Schaefer. Executive producer is Katie Widrick. Technical director is Jason Morrow. Chief audio engineer is Mac Dula. And our most important team member is you. Remember, when it comes to growing Boulder, it's not about age. It's about attitude. Oh